All right, well, it's good to see all of you here. First off, I want to thank uh, the church for the opportunity to preach God's Word and um, ask for your prayers as I do so. Uh, this portion of Scripture, uh, as was read earlier, uh, is a difficult one, um, and I'm especially eager to preach it. Um, this sermon was a challenging work and one that I hope will prove fruitful. Um, you know, after, initially, after I had submit, submitted my research to Graham, I thought to myself, I'm done. I mean, I've done all the research that I could, and uh, he's going to say, man, this is awesome. I got it back with uh, five pages of notes. So um, uh, it was really good, though. Graham had a lot of good insight, and so I'd just like to thank Graham. Uh, you know, as your pastor, he really cares about uh, what y'all are hearing up here, and he really cares that the uh, Word of God is being exalted. So, yeah, I just want to say thank you to him. And secondly, before we just jump into the text... Uh, uh, I want to give a disclaimer. Uh, this sermon does utilize some extra-biblical sources. Now, before y'all just get up and start walking out of here, let me explain. The reason it utilizes extra-biblical sources is simply because Jude cites extra-biblical sources, okay? And what I mean by that is that these sources that Jude is citing are outside of the canon of Scripture. Okay? And I'd rather... Rather than just sidestep that, we're going to understand that, and I feel it best to explore all the nuances of the text uh, in, in a quest for a more under, in-depth understanding of God's Word. And so thirdly, let me say this. Even though today's sermon does utilize books outside of Scripture, those sources function only to enrich and deepen our knowledge of God's Word. Amen? Make no mistake, God's Word is the only book that is completely inspired by God on the face of the planet. Even though these sources, utilize, these sources utilized reference God, they are at best historical in their context. Last week, Jimmy and I talked, Jimmy talked about contending for the faith and the dangers of apostasy. Today, this sermon is about apostasy, identifying apostasy. So, as we delve into this, I'd ask you to please turn with me to Jude 8 through 16. Jude 8 through 16. It's located just before Revelation. We come now to the heart of the book and its pastoral concern. From Jude 5 down to 23, Jude gives us both negative and positive pastoral assessment of the situation. Our sermon today is in verses 8 through 16. I'm going to read that text again, and I'd ask you to all please stand with me in reverence of God's Word as we read together. Jude, verse 8 through 16, says this. I'm reading from the ESV. Yet in a like manner, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael contended with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they will walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's era and perish in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, 
fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars from, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own selfish desires. They are loudmouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that as we read your text that we would properly be able to identify apostates. Another word for that would be false teachers. Help us to identify false teachers. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I know that the text there, let me just say this. I didn't select this portion of text. I kind of got the short end of the straw whenever we were going through uh, Jude. So um, let me just explain this. That if you're a believer in Christ, right, if you truly believe that Christ is the exclusive way to heaven, that namely only through him will you have restitution with God, this text is not an admonition against you. It is rather an admonition for you. Okay? It is for the believers so that they can understand and properly identify false teachers. This text is for our benefit as believers. It helps us to identify the character, the nature, and what to look for in apostates. Now, Jimmy defined the term apostates and uh, I, if, you, if you need a really good in-depth uh, definition of um, apostasy, I'd recommend that you listen to last week's sermon. Jimmy Hendricks did a great job on that. Um, but just to kind of give a brief synopsis of that, let me say this. Apostasy is interchangeable in this context with the term false teacher. Okay? So it's not just somebody who's left the faith. No, these are people who are operating in the church as deacons, leaders, and elders who are not believers. And so Jude is writing the church so that they can notice these people for what they are. And so the same is transitionary to us. He writes this letter so that we know what to look for. Does that make sense? Okay. In verse 8, it says, Yet in a like manner these people also relying on their dreams. Jude initiates this section with an identification of these apostates, right? He doesn't say they're believers, rather. He says, these people, they're the subject of his letter. They're the subject of what he's writing about. This brings up our first point. Jews' text is concerned with identifying false teachers. This verse is intended to compare these apostates with his examples used in verses 4 through 5. I'm not going to go through 4 and 5 real in-depth because Jimmy went through it last week. As I said, if you really want to listen to a better description of apostates, uh, listen to Jimmy's sermon last week. But he's relating these people with the examples that he gives in verses 4 and 5, namely the Israelites in the wilderness, the fallen angels who followed Satan, and Sodom and Gomorrah. They're all the examples that are fixated on identifying and connecting these false teachers with what Jude is talking about here. So he's saying, okay, look, these false teachers or apostates, they look like this. They look like the Israelites 
who were destroyed in the wilderness. They looked like the fallen angels who followed Satan. They looked like Sodom and Gomorrah who ultimately were destroyed for their immorality. The context proves that these people were not believers. And not only that, but if we look further into verse 8, it says also they relied on their dreams. Let's look at that in its full context. The context proves that the term used here for dreams was what these, these false teachers had predicated their belief system on. The word dreams in the Greek here is the same term sometimes used for apocalyptic visions comparable to those of the prophets, those that the prophets received in the Old Testament. That means these false teachers didn't get their beliefs from their own mind. They were supernaturally revealed. These false teachers had experienced supernatural, visionary-type dreams. You know, the truth is, is that this is not without precedent. They had, they had supernatural things that had taken place in their life, and that is what they were building their faith on rather than building it on God's Word. Does that make sense? Folks, this still happens in many cases today. I want you to look at this picture. Anybody know this? Anybody know this picture? This is a cave at Mount Jabal. All right? I want to tell you a story. There was a man who began to pray in this cave. The cave's name is Hera. He began to pray in this cave yearly. This is located near what we would consider today Mecca. For several weeks a year, he would go there and pray. And the story goes that one of the times he was there, he had a vision of the archangel Gabriel who appeared to him and commanded this man to recite. And this, this reciting that he had gathered later became world famous. Does anyone know who I'm talking about? The prophet Muhammad, so-called prophet Muhammad supposedly had this divine revelation and it led him astray because it was not predicated in God's word. Folks, make no mistake, supernatural things are still taking place in today's world, aren't they? But not all are divine. Some are, in fact, evil. They, there have been supernatural occurrences throughout history and if I may so be, be so bold to say, they have a hellish stench. Anything that goes against the deity of Christ and who he is and God's word, make no mistake, is not from God, but is rather from the wicked, from sometimes these false teachers. So Jude is using this analogy to to describe how these false teachers are predicating their faith not on the true revelation, but rather their own revelation. That's why it's so important in 1 John 4.1, it tells us to test the spirits, right? Test the spirits to see if they're in God. We should have a confidence in the Bible. It is the sword by which we do combat. If you don't believe me, look at Matthew 1, or excuse me, Matthew 4, 1 through 10. Do you remember how Jesus combated Satan in the wilderness when he was tempted? Every time Satan came to him, what did he say? What did he say? He said, It is written. 
the sword by which we do our combat against ungodliness and even the supernatural is, com- is done by God's word. Now, I'm not saying that all supernatural events are evil, but the Bible does encourage us to check it out, right? We have to check these revelations with God's word. Moving on to verse 9, and for the sake of time, I'm going to try and go through this pretty quickly. Verse 9 says this, But when the archangel Michael contended with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a slanderous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Jude's example here is a contrast between the conduct of the false teachers or the apostates with the conduct of the archangel Michael, which ties in with how to identify apostates and false teachers. Some scholars believe that Jude is quoting from an intertestamental book known as the Assumptions of Moses. I'm not going to get into all that right now, but just there's a lot of evidence that supports that. And um, I'm of the persuasion as well that he's quoting from the assumptions of Moses. But however, uh, it's really not important. What is important is that the account really happened because it's in the Bible, right? If it were just a fabrication or a lie, it would not be in the Bible. Therefore, we know that this really took place. That Michael, the archangel Gabriel, really had a discussion with the devil because it's in the Bible. Make a mistake, the Bible is inerrant. Therefore, this portion must be inerrant. And the word that's used here, in, as the ESV transfer, translates it, blaspheme, whenever it says that, he blast, that Michael would not blaspheme, I think is better translated, for our purposes, it's better translated as slander or insult. Because whenever we think of blaspheme, we automatically think of blaspheming God. But in this context, it's talking about slander or insult. So at the end of verse 8, Jude References that these people have insulted the glorious ones. Jude's account of the archangel Michael and the devil illustrates that not even the angel of God would slander the most mischievous being in history, and yet these people do it on a daily basis. Do you see the connection there? So Jude is seeking to establish, he's predicating his assertion about them based on their character and their own actions. Essentially, Jude is saying this. He's saying, look, Michael, who is an archangel of God, would not even slander Satan himself. But yet these people slander everything. They slander all that they do not even understand. So essentially, Jude is saying, look at the character of a righteous being in comparison with the character of these apostates. Does that make sense? That's the comparison and the contrast that's going on here. Look at verse 10. He says, But these people slander all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So essentially, he's saying that these people don't understand the things that they're doing. But they do understand one thing. The scholar R. Bakken said, like irrational animals, these false, these false teachers do grasp one thing, the instinctive behavior of animals in heat. These people were acting just like animals. Jude was not implying that these people are animals, but that they're acting like them. There's a difference. The truth is, um, 
some scholars mistakenly equate these people's behavior with a evolutionary type theology. What they, what they assume is that, okay, well, man is just referring back to a primal state. That is unbiblical. Matter of fact, the Bible tells us distinctly that man has a distinct nature, and it has always been distinct. Man is not an animal that has clawed his way to the top of the food chain. Man was made at the top of the food chain. We were created in the image of God. So Jude is not antiquating these false teachers and saying that they're primal. Rather, he's saying they're acting like animals. The truth is, the Bible does not tell us that man evolved. It tells us that man's nature is distinct. Folks, we have a special relationship with God. Isn't that a great thing? As human beings, we are a prized jewel in God's divine intervention, in God's world. No other creation can make such a boast. That's why the angels look at us in awe. They want to study these things, as Paul says. Our nature is distinct. But I do believe that, that Jude is making is seeking to associate these false teachers with something, but I'm not sure if it's just animals per se. Let me explain. As I just said, the Bible illustrates that man is not an animal, nor has he ever been an animal, animal, nor will he ever be an animal. So to conclude that Jude is just equating these men with a primal instinct is unwarranted. Man doesn't have a primal instinct, but guess what he does have? A sinful instinct. He does have a sinful instinct. And that harkens back all the way to original sin, which took place in the garden, where Adam and Eve were deceived by what? A snake. An animal. You see the correlation here? Are you following me? Essentially, Judas connecting these people with the fall of man. <clears throat> and then he goes on to describe, in Jude 11, he goes on to describe, he says, Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's era and perish in Korah's rebellion. This first brings up our second point in the sermon, the fate of false teachers. You see here, Jude is connecting these false teachers with the initial fall of man, and then he goes on to describe the fate that is stored up for them. Jude's not holding anything back here. You know, I'd just like to make that note. I know that this is sometimes difficult to read because it comes off as so uh, harsh, but the truth of the matter is, is that Jude is writing this probably from an emotional amalgam, emotional standpoint of tired of dealing with false teachers in the church, tired of dealing with people who are set against God. And so he's writing to encourage believers. The message rings true for us today. You know, I can remember just this past week, I went to uh, an interfaith seminar uh, representing the uh, seminary where I go. I went there and um, there were people from all different denominations and faiths. You know, and I'd like, I'd like to say this, is that um, I come in contact with a lot of different people, and I have never felt the hostility that I felt at this interfaith. Matter of fact, there was a lesbian Jewish rabbi that cussed me out uh, because I affirmed that Christ was the only way to heaven. Make no mistake, y'all, there are false teachers out there, and they are against believers. You know, this is, this is something that has been prominent throughout history. And, it's tr and truthfully, 
in the American culture, we kind of live in this safe bubble. It's the anomaly. Not the fact that people were, pers were persecuted for thousands of years and still are being persecuted. The anomaly is us. The anomaly is us who have not suffered persecution to the extent that other believers have. So be aware that there are false teachers out there who essentially want to harm you and are against God. But make no mistake, God has their fate in store for them. As I said, Jude elaborates on what these people, what the fate of their lives were. He says, woe to them. This emphasizes great sorrow and distress. Oftentimes, this, this woe was a call of scream out in fear. <laughs> these people are in danger. They, the, the example of apostasy here is threefold. He connects the apostasy of Cain, Balaam, and Korah's rebellion. Now, we're familiar with Cain, or we should be. Cain was the, uh, the first son of Adam who killed his brother. So, essentially, Jude is, Jude is quoting this point of Scripture from Genesis 4.11 to emphasize that these people are killing believers, right? He's... He's equating that these people are killing God's people. And then he goes on to describe Balaam. Balaam was a sorcerer of the Old Testament. And Balaam's error, as Jude describes it, was that he sabotaged the Israelites as they entered into the Promised Land in Numbers 31, 16. So these false teachers are sabotaging believers... They are killing believers. They are sabotaging believers. And then you have Korah's rebellion. Korah's rebellion was that they rebelled against God and God sent fire from heaven and consumed 250 of these individuals. So you follow it here. He's saying that they killed believers, that they sabotaged believers, and then God kills them. So we have to understand that in the context here, Jude is following a natural process of Jewish theology here. The difference between the wicked and the righteous, right? So being that we are righteous, we are believers, this is not the same fate for us. However, if we are not believers, this is the same fate for us. These non-believers, these false teachers who operate in the church are killing believers, they're sabotaging believers, and God's going to deal with them. Does that make sense? God's going to deal with them. And he goes on to describe how they're achieving this work that they're doing. They are hidden reefs at your love feast. The Greek word spalades used for reefs was normally indicative of rocks, rocks jutting out of the water. You know, being a maritime, I was in the Navy for four years. I know exactly what he's talking about here. There are certain areas, whenever you get in shallow water, where it looks deep, but if you were to bring the ship in, you would end up shipwrecked. So Jude is, is saying that these people are operating within the church and they are hidden amongst us and that if anyone gets too close to them, their faith would end up shipwrecked. And he goes on to describe what else they are. There are waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees. 
I don't have time to cover every metaphor Jude uses here. Suffice to say that these apostates or false teachers are useless and unproductive, being that causes only devastation and are destined to die in both the physical and the spiritual. Jude is not holding anything back here, as I said. His letter was an admonition for believers to contend against these ungodly people. In verses 14 through 15, it was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all of their ungodly deeds, of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. This is an apparent quotation from 1 Enoch 1.9. This is what I spoke about earlier whenever I was given a, um, a disclaimer at the beginning. Uh, this is a quote from an extra-biblical source that Jude is using here. And <clears throat> in the context, uh, Jude is quoting from this extra-biblical source to solidify what these people are saying. And, you know, the truth is, is that Jude is probably quoting from Enoch to use their own scripture against, against them. It might have been very prominent that these false teachers were spreading their false doctrine using Enoch's book. So Jude is quoting from that to inadvertently say, look, these people's own book testifies against them. Does that make sense? So the book of Enoch is not authoritative in the sense of scripture. Wherever one may fall on this issue is a discussion for another time, but we do know that the book was inspired at this one portion because it's in Scripture, right? As we said earlier, Scripture is inerrant. Therefore, this portion must be inerrant because it's in Scripture. So, bearing that in mind, the quote from Enoch here only solidifies the fact that these false teachers may have been mishandling supernatural revelations and, and mishandling historical books. The usage of holy ones in this context is not the holy one of Israel, as in Isaiah 43.3. This usage is plural. Jude is talking about the angels whom God commands. You know, and I just want to say this too. Angels are mentioned 273 times in the Bible. They are referred sometimes as holy ones. Contrary to what some may believe about these beings, the reality of it is angels do exist. They do. Not only that, but they are very much a part of God's plan. They are very much interactive and even in our own lives. Another side note here I'd like to, like to emphasize is this, is that Christ, as it says reigns over these angels. They are subject to him, right? It says in 1 Peter 3.22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to him. Because of what the church was facing, Jude felt that they needed to be reminded of the spiritual warfare that transpires. You know, I think it's important for us today to remember in a modern society, being far removed from the spiritual things that are going on around us. It's important for us to remember that there is a spiritual warfare going on around us, isn't there? 
There really is. There are those who would seek to destroy you, and there are those who are here to help us. You know, that's encouraging to me. Whenever I read the examples of the angels that are given in the uh, Bible and the revelations, that, the revelations that took place, you know, the Lord, you know, God, he, he, he has sent his angels, and he is pitting them against these false teachers. The reference Jude uses here, they're sent to convict, judge, and even destroy just like the angels who vanquished Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18. Or the angel that appeared to Zechariah in Luke 1, 5 through 17. We godly Christians don't need to fear these angelic beings for the most part. If they're from God, they're on our side. They're contending with us. And then lastly, Jude 16. He goes on to solidify the fate of these false teachers in a way that says their character and what they do. He says, They are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desire. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. In conclusion, Jude summarizes this paragraph with a description about what these people really are. You know, John MacArthur called them spiritual terrorists. <laughs> I, think that's a, I think that's a good analogy. The description given by Jude was a gut-wrenching reality that these people are set against us. But take heart. Christ has overcome the world, and these people's fate, those who are against God, their fate is sealed. These nefarious individuals, I love that word nefarious. I had to use the term nefarious. You know, they told me to dumb down the language a little bit, but I had to leave that word nefarious in there because I had a friend of mine who had a a professor at Trinity um, Seminary in uh, San Antonio, and any time he spoke of Hitler, he used the term nefarious because it's a great uh, illustration of a person or an individual whose, whose entire focus in life is to gain advantage over the destruction of others. And that's exactly what Jude is saying about these false teachers, about these apostates, is that their primary concern is to gain advantage in life. They are set against Christians and ultimately set against Christ. You know, I told you the story about my, um, my interfaith seminar. Well, I actually, as I said, uh, you know, the woman who uh, was very mad with me and, and essentially cussed, cussed at me, uh, one of the interesting things to me about it was there were other liberal Christians around there. I, wouldn't, I don't even know if I would call them Christians. They don't believe that Christ is, they don't believe anything about Christ, but I don't even know if I would call them Christians. But um, they were sitting around her, and as she was, um, the, the anger and the hatred in her voice as she was talking to me, they actually sided with her, and they took, they took this analogy. They said, they said to me, well, she doesn't believe that Christ is the only way to heaven, so what do you say about her? It's a difficult thing being pressed into a corner, isn't it? It's a difficult thing being pressed into a corner and having to stand up for the truth of God's word. So I looked at her in the face, and I said, the Bible teaches clearly that salvation is only through Jesus Christ. 
If anyone were to go to the Father, they must go through the Son. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And anyone who is not in Christ will then, by default, go to, go to hell. And the tension in the room was palpable. I really believed, I really believed had it been 2,000 years ago, they probably would have drugged me outside and killed me, to be honest with you. It was, a, it was, a, very, it was a very tense situation. But folks, we must stand against these false teachers. Come what have you. Whatever may happen in this life, make no mistake, Christ is your Redeemer. Christ is the way by which we are saved. And I'd ask you this, do you love your Lord? Do you care that His name is exalted? Jude cared. Jude cared. He wanted to see Christ exalted. Cared so much that he was willing to die for it. And as Christians, it is our duty to have this type of mentality, to be able to identify apostates so that we can properly worship God. Does that make sense? I know this, I know this text is kind of gloomy in its tone, right? But I really want believers to understand this, that this is not to be a gloomy message. This is a message for your benefit. This is a message that says Christ reigns in you. Exalt him. Identify these people so that we can better and properly worship God. With that being said, let's pray.